Welcome to Pete ID Pod Episode Two. I am Chai, Rong Thao Bullet. Yeah, I'm George. I'm the pediatric pharmacist. How are you doing, George? Oh, doing good. Doing good. So we're gonna review uh ten articles in Pete ID. Yep. Uh, that came out uh, last month. Yep. The first one we chose is rising pneumococcal antibody resistant in the post thirteen variant pneumococcal conjugated vaccine era in pediatric isolates from a primary care setting. Yes. And uh, in this study, what they found is that um, there is an increased penicillin resistant uh, after PCV thirteen. Um, among the serotype 35B, 35F, and 11A, which are not included in PCV13, uh, among um, kids with acute otitis media and uh, nasopharyngeal colonization. And this is very interesting because uh, this article was published in uh, Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease on March, in March of 2021. And it's interesting because initially when the first PCV13 was introduced, we noticed there was a decrease in terms of resistance pattern among the pneumococcus in general. But now we're observing more like Darwinian phenomenon because uh, we have an increased frequency of isolation of serotype 35B, 35F, and 11A and that observed similar during when we first introduced the PCV7 for seropy19A. That's right. The MIC that they found this time uh, it start increasing uh, during the period of 2014 to 2016. So uh, that was about four years after PCV13 introduction. Exactly. So, so the more important thing to take from this study is for now, even though we know the patient's vaccination history, we cannot presume the patients like a pneumococcus, like a infection to like acute otitis media would be penicillin sensitive. That's right. And the uh, the rise in the MIC uh, was observed uh, with penicillin, with amoxicillin, uh, with subtraxone, and surprisingly also with meropenem. Okay, now we're going to move on to the next one. Uh, the title of this article is Childhood Outcome Following Echo Virus Infection in U.S. Young Infants. Let me pull it out. Uh, where is it? Yeah, and this, uh, this study was published in the Journal of Pediatric Infectious Disease and in March 2021 as well. So this is the first U.S. study to report detailed developmental follow-up of children after infantile parechal virus A3 infection. Yeah, um, the follow-up happened in 19 kids in one center in Kansas City. Um, and they followed them uh, for three years, uh, from what I can tell from this study. And what they found is that uh, one third of them had uncomplicated uh, infection. The other one third has complex infection, and then the other one third has parvovirus encephalitis. And eleven percent of them uh, end up with some kind of neurologic uh, impairment. So this is another virus we need. We need to keep an eye on. 
uh, on young infants that come in with clinical encephalitis or CNS manifestation. Yes. Okay, so we'll jump to the next study. So the title of the study is a tetanus diphtheria, a cellular pertussis vaccination during pregnancy and risk of pertussis in a newborn in publicly and privately insured mother to infant pairs in the United States. And this article was published in the Pediatric Infectious Disease Journal in March 2021. So they analyzed uh, two databases. Uh, one is uh, private insurance population yes. Yes. and the other one is the Medicaid, uh, Medicaid population yes. and uh, they want to look at the uh, Tdap uh, efficacy and it was found to be 38% in terms of preventing uh, infant uh, from uh, developing pertussis. And um, one thing that I found kind of striking, uh, kind of striking here is that the effect is stronger in preterm infant. So it raises the question whether we should vaccinate uh, this pregnant woman earlier yes. uh, before twenty-seven week gestation. Exactly, and also it is interesting to find out when we compare in the term infant group when we compare between the the mother infant pair who are privately insured versus the Medicaid insured, the Medicaid insured had a 4.8 times higher of a, of a, like a risk of pertussis. Yeah, I the think it's uh, the problem it might be on the access yes. to care and then the access to the vaccine. Exactly. Alright, so the next paper is epidemiology of early and late onset neonatal sepsis in very low birth weight infant uh, from the German neonatal network uh, published in PID ID journal uh, last month. And then this article is very interesting. So in summary, they uh, based on the statistics, so it, it was found out the most common pathogens in early onset sepsis of very low infants, the most common one was E. coli, which followed by coagulus negative staph, and then followed by group B strep. And versus the most common pathogen in late onset sepsis of very low birth weight infants, the most common one was a coagulus negative staph, followed by staph aureus, and then followed by the grain negative pathogens other than E. coli. So it just made me wonder whether we need to have antibiotics as an empiric regimen uh, for coagulase negative staph uh, in early onset sepsis, which is not what we do nowadays. No, yeah. Right? So, because we start um, treatment for that population with mostly ampicillin plus genomycin, which would not cover for coagulase negative staph. Yes. So what's your thought on that method? Oh, I, I think I think like a because one of the limitation of this study is because the definition of the uh, onset of sepsis require at least one positive blood culture. 
and we know oftentimes the core gasinated stack could be the contaminant. So I would suggest we can also like loop in to evaluate the vital signs and look at the signs of infection and possibly we may need to repeat the culture to prove it is a true like a invading pathogen causing Yeah, infection. I agree. So we should look at the patient first yes. before we look at the culture result. Yes. Okay, next paper is Kingala Kinge displays step oris as the most common cause of acute septic arthritis in children of all ages. Uh, this was published again in PID Journal la last month. Yeah, and this study was done like a, in Lisbon, Portugal. And then, so basically, they uh, this a uh, prospective and uh, semi-retrospective and prospective observational study on children less than eighteen years old with septic arthritis admitted to the tertiary care pediatric hospital. And what they found is that Kingella is the most common pathogen, uh, up to fifty-two percent. Yes. Um, and uh, it's much more common during fall season uh, in this study and we know that Kinkella uh, is quite seasonal you know in fall and winter you know usually after viral infection yes. so I think this is kind of eye-opening for me that um, Kinkella has been reported now from several papers that uh, is going to be one of the most common organisms for septic arthritis in kids not only in kids uh, younger than five years of age, but also in kids of all ages, you know, based on this study from protocol. Exactly. And this study also has some like a some like a conclusion about the risk factors for complication from septic arthritis. They are like CRP greater eighty greater or equal to eighty and having a step risk infection and also the age greater or equal to four years old and, and the high CRP those are at higher risk for complications. Yeah, which that means that they also look at the step or risk arthritis in this population as well and that's how they come up with these two risk factors. Exactly. The next paper is um gonna be about COVID. The first one um is the effectiveness of BNT162B2 mRNA vaccine against COVID infection and the vaccine coverage in healthcare workers in England. This is a multi-center prospective cohort study um, that, um, that show that in this study based on the, um, based on the real world data among um, over 34,000 healthcare workers, uh, it showed that the vaccine is effective uh, against both symptomatic and asymptomatic infections. So that means that it could prevent transmission per se. And it also uh, showed that it is effective against the B117 variant that was circulating in UK. Yeah, so the study concluded the adjusted effectiveness of uh, this Pfizer COVID vaccine against infection. The efficacy was 72% at 21 days after the first dose, with a 95% like confidence interval between 58 to 86%, and the overall 86% effectiveness 
as seven days after the second dose. And also, they also reveal a reduced risk of infection in vaccinated individuals and starting within three days following the first dose. And also, yeah. the protection kind of plateaued after 21 days. Uh, 21 days after the first after dose. First dose. Right, but it increased again after the individuals received the second, second dose. dose yes. mm-hmm. Next paper is Cluster of SARS-CoV-2 Infection among elementary school educators and students in one school district in Georgia, United States. This was published in uh, MMWR uh, to the CDC. And this is an interesting like a study because they identified their total of nine clusters of COVID-19 cases, which involved like 13 educators and 32 students and among like six elementary schools. And I think what they found is that the educator or the teacher uh, is in the center of all the cluster. So what I take um, out from this uh, report is that we should vaccinate teacher okay. and teachers should be uh, among the priority group to receive the, the vaccine. Yes. And then the next study is the assessment of respiratory function in infants and young children wearing face masks during the COVID-19 pandemic. So the article was published in JAMA Network uh, last month. Yeah, this was done in Italy. So it's very interesting. So they uh, asked these 47 infant and young children in Italy to wear the surgical mask for 30 30 minutes. And then they measure uh, the recipe parameters uh, for uh, respiratory distress and for the saturation and what they found is that um, most kids um, can handle the mass well without any respiratory compromise at all exactly and also for the older age group like uh, two years and older for participants after the mass challenge they also did additional walking tests so even from the walking test they found there's no like a significant respiratory like a, like effect to the effect to the respiratory functions. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they divide uh, kids into uh, two groups. Uh, group A is less than two years old, and group B is two years all the way to uh, twelve years old. 12 years old. Yeah. And they all uh, shown that they can handle the mass pretty well. Yes. Mm. So this further emphasize once we want to consider open the school, other than the educators, the teachers have to be vaccinated, and also we can also encourage kids to continue wear face masks. Yeah, and we can uh, we can reassure the parents that uh, kids can wear uh, face masks uh, safely. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the next paper is Factors Associated with Severe SARS-CoV-2 Infection, published in Journal of Pediatrics. Yes, and this is the study, this is a French National Prospective Surveillance Study. So they try to define 
What is the characteristic and what are the risk factors associated with a severe COVID infection? And then the definition of severe disease, COVID disease in this study is the requirement for hemodynamic or ventilator, whether it's invasive or not, whether any ventilator support. Yeah, so they include children with uh, SARS-CoV-2 who got admitted uh, in 60 hospitals throughout uh, France um, in February to June of uh, 2020. And uh, what they found that surprised me most is that um, young infants actually do quite well, which is uh, totally different from other reports uh, that we have seen before that infants uh, tend to get severe COVID infection. Exactly. And then the other thing is that uh, they found that the factor independently associated with the severity of the disease uh, were aged more than 10 years old or uh, hypoxemia, which is you know a given, and uh, CRP uh, more than 80 milligrams per liter. So I'll be looking for those uh, parameters from this point on if I see a kid with COVID. Exactly. And then one thing to share is compared to some previous study. So we noticed like uh, between studies, so there are different definitions in terms of the like uh, the severe COVID cases. Like like uh, before, there was a study done in group of China and in China right so they define as any like oxygen requirement right, as a considered severe versus this study and then they categorize the severity as a requirement for ventilator or hemodynamic support the last uh, paper we're going to talk about is characteristic and outcome of US children adolescent with Multisystemic inflammatory syndrome in children or MISC compared with severe acute COVID 19. Uh, this was published uh, in JAMA. It's a case series that look at the outcome uh, from the COVID network to identify uh, kids uh, less than 21 years of age with uh, SARS CoV 2. Um, who got admitted to the hospital uh, in 2020 from 31 United uh, States in the US. Yes. And uh, what they found is that those who got diagnosed with MISI were more likely to be uh, in the older age group, 6 to 12 years old, which is what we have seen here in Fresno. Um, also being non-Hispanic Black, and have a severe cardiovascular or skin uh, involvement and have very, very high uh, inflammatory markers. And about the more commonly in the non-Hispanic black, we can echo to like in Kawasaki disease. Mm -hmm. So we know the black race by itself is a risk factor for non-responsive to the IVIG treatment and also increased frequency of coronary abnormalities. That's right. Uh And since you talk about the uh, cardiac anomalies, um, one thing that kind of, um, I'm kind of happy to see is that um, even those with the severe cardiovascular involvement from MISI, they all resolve uh, within 30 days. 
So that is a good news. Exactly. In the study found the left ventr ventricular ejection fraction is found to be normalized in most MISI patients within one to two weeks. So that's all we have for PID part uh, this month. See you guys next month. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.